This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into today's content, I want to give you a little bit of an abortion update because every time there is big news in the world of abortion, we are going to bring it to you here on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. So first of all, as of the recording of this podcast, I'm recording this on Tuesday. What is this? May the 7th. Boom. That's what you get for having a calendar right in front of your face when you're recording. Boom. So on this date, it's a big date. I'm really excited. Might be why I'm a little flummoxed right now because Georgia governor, Brian Kemp actually signed into law the heartbeat bill in Georgia. And so I want to read a little something from you. This is by Caleb Park over at Fox News. It's an article entitled Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signs controversial heartbeat bill into law because this will kind of give you give you all all the information that you need, get you caught up to speed to everything that you need to understand why this is such a big deal. But then we'll kind of look at, you know, where it's got holes here in a second. So I'm going to go ahead and read from the article here. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed the heartbeat bill into law Tuesday morning. Kemp kept his campaign promise in signing the bill, House Bill 481, technically called the, quote, Living Infants Fairness and Equality Act, unquote, which will prohibit abortions in the state after the heartbeat is detected as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. The law allows exceptions in the case of rape, incest, or if the life of the mother is in danger. Before the signing of the bill, State Representative Ed Seltzer, or Setzler, excuse me, pointed to science law and the simple fact that common sense says a beating heart is a sign of life and those children should receive the full protection of the law. State Senator Renee Unterman, a former nurse who ushered the bill through the state Senate, said she has waited her entire time as a legislator for this moment, calling it the culmination of my political career. Georgia is a state that values life, Kim said before putting his signature on the Life Act. We stand up for those who are unable to speak for themselves. Kim said he recognizes the bill will be challenged. But our job is to do what is right, not what is easy, Kemp added. We will not back down. We will always continue to fight for life. Opponents have promised to sue over the constitutionality of the bill and argue that because some women don't know that they are pregnant when a heartbeat is detectable, that the new law virtually bans all abortions in the state. It has been called the most extreme abortion law in the nation. This law is bafflingly unconstitutional. Bans like this have always been blocked by courts. We will be suing Georgia to make sure that this law has the same fate, Elizabeth Smith, chief counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights, said in a statement. Supporters trumpeted the bill, similar to ones passed in Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, Iowa, North Dakota, as as protecting the constitutional rights of the unborn and allowing pregnant mothers to collect child support payments from fathers. The heartbeat bill, the heartbeat bill, will go into effect at the beginning of next year. The bill made national headlines when liberal activist and an actress Alyssa Milano, who has been filming a Netflix comedy in Atlanta, made headlines when she marched into Kemp's office with a letter last month to speak out on the heartbeat bill. The letter was signed by 50 celebrities, ooh, 50 celebrities who vowed to boycott the state, which has a burgeoning movie industry, if the bill was signed into law. It's a historic day for Georgia, for Georgia families, and for those. Precious unborn babies, Representative Jenny Earnhardt, a co-sponsor of the bill, told Fox and Friends Tuesday morning. So, guys, 
this is good news, right? And I know people have kind of some a mixed bag of of options here when they're talking about this, but this is very good news. So obviously, if we can pretty much eradicate abortion in the state of Georgia, that's positive. The thing that this begs, again, I'm not trying to throw a wet blanket on this, is are you saying that these babies are not important before they're six weeks old? So between the date of conception and the six-week mark, what are we essentially talking about here, right? What's valuable about them? But again, it's a positive measure. It's a step in the right direction, but this is kind of the latest and kind of the piecemeal approach to this. Because if you're basically saying that life begins at conception, but you're okay with them, if they kill the life at three weeks or four weeks or five weeks, then what exactly are we saying? But at the end of the day, I am super excited about what Governor Brian Kemp did because he was facing a lot of pressure here. And just so you know, the industry, the burgeoning, you know, film industry that we saw in the state of Georgia, that was not a small thing. It was bringing billions, billions with a B dollars to the state of Georgia. I mean, an unbelievable amount of money. So this took some stones to do what the Georgia governor did to be able to make this campaign promise and follow through on it as quickly as he could. And here's the thing. Think about all the celebrities that said that they were going to leave the country if Donald Trump was elected president. Have any of them left? Like any of them? Like these celebrities that make these grandiose claims, I'm never going to do this or I'm never going to do that. You're telling me that if their studio says, hey, this is the the script that we want you uh, to read, you read it, you like it, your agent likes it, they send you an offer and you sign the offer and then they're like, okay, uh, we're going to shoot you out to Atlanta so we can start filming. You think that they're going to be like, "Ah, I don't want these millions of dollars because this state did something I don't like. We're a sad face. No, that's not what they're going to do. They're going to do exactly what the studio tells them, studio tells them to do. So this is a very good thing. I'm very excited about that. Uh, however, you know, obviously I want that abortion for abortion to be illegal in all, all cases at all times for, for all of those reasons. Um, but again, this is something that is moving in the right direction. But before we get into what we're going to be talking about today, we have to talk about democratic state representative in the state of Pennsylvania, Brian Sims. So You probably know that name by now because this guy should have never been famous. There's nothing that should have ever come up where we ever heard this guy's name until he decided to be the biggest dickhead on planet Earth. This guy. So what he would do is this guy who's an elected representative of this state. I would read you an article, but I'll just go go and summarize what you're doing or what he's doing. He would live stream himself going out and harassing people that are peaceably assembling outside of Planned Parenthoods in Philadelphia. So there's a Planned Parenthood in Philadelphia where over the weekend, this guy took video of himself basically verbally accosting an elderly woman who is quietly sitting outside of the abortion clinic and praying for the souls of the children that were being slaughtered inside. Again, she was she was just literally minding her own business and praying for these babies. And he came up to her again. He's filming all this with his phone because he was obviously proud of it. He was live streaming on uh, Periscope and all these different things. And he's basically trying to get this woman's face on camera for obvious reasons. And the woman's, you know, hiding her face for obvious reasons because she doesn't want people to to see her. And, you know, maybe she would be a, a lightning rod for abuse or further abuse or something like that. And he basically just told her she was a shame. She was a sham that she was a, a gross human being that she, what she was doing wasn't Christian, blah, 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 all that kind of a thing. So if you miss that one. A couple of days later, it's almost like he was like, well, I didn't get enough attention the first time I did this, so I need to go and ramp it up. So I think it was two days later, he goes back to the same place, and in the same fashion, there are three teenage girls that are outside of the abortion clinic 
praying for the souls of the babies that are being slaughtered and for the women that are making the choice to do so, and presumably for the doctors that are performing this with their overcalloused hearts, right? And he does the same thing, but this time he ups his ante a little bit. He gets these teenage girls on camera and says, if anyone knows who these people are, I will give each, I will donate a hundred dollars to Planned Parenthood to, for in, for each one of these people that gives us the information about who these people are, where they live, what their names are. It's called doxing, D-O-X-I-N-G, doxing. That's basically where you're trying to, to get somebody's information out there. It's usually like you post someone's phone number on Instagram or Twitter or their address or something like that just to bring attention to them. People go throw eggs at their house or send them a bunch of terrible messages or whatever the thing is. And so this guy does that and just doesn't even have the foggiest sense of what he's doing is wrong. These kids are, these are kids. These are teenage girls. And he's going out there basically losing his mind. And he thinks he's in the right. He's calling them gross human beings. Again, saying that they're not Christians, that Christians wouldn't do such a thing. And these girls are trying to, you know, say, Hey, can you just leave us alone? We're just out here playing for, praying for these women. And this is a guy that's an elected official. So he's been excoriated for this over the last several days. He's been absolutely ripped up and down for this as well. He should be right. But the thing is, is today he posts a picture or a video on his Twitter or something like that. And he's in a suit this time. He's not in his t-shirt or whatever. And you think it's about to be an apology video. And he basically doubles down on the actions that he did, right? Which is going to be a huge appealing thing to the people that supported him and the people that like him. But again, this is a guy who is proud that he was telling people on the internet to get the addresses of teenage girls. Now, the obvious thing here is, is it, If a Republican representative, if a Republican state representative in the state of Texas went up to, you know, a group of pro-choice advocates that were basically outside of a pro-life rally that are basically picketing or doing whatever they're doing in their pussy hats and, and screaming and hollering all that third wave feminism, second wave feminism type of stuff. At what, at what point would we have ignored the fact that a Republican did that same type of a thing to someone who's on the left? I mean, if you haven't heard about the story, it's because the media you're watching isn't covering it. But the thing about it is, is if this was on the other foot, if the shoe was on the other foot, if a Republican had done this or someone that's on the right had done this to somebody on the left or someone that has a leftist viewpoint, we'd be hearing about it for weeks. I mean, can you remember the Covington Catholic high school boys? Like a kid smirked at this, this uh, Native American guy. He, he smirked at him. And, and we, we heard about it and we heard all these amazing, grandiose stories about how big of a deal that this was that an oh, like a privileged white teenager was smirking in the face of a Native American man. Even though the overwhelming majority of the story that we heard in the first 24, 48 hours was complete hogwash, we, we still heard about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. We'll never hear about something like this because this is just going to go away. Because people think on on the political left or people that kind of lean that direction or maybe the atheist left or whatever you want to call it, that these things are just normal. We should call out Christians because they are awful. How dare these Christians, he makes fun of these people for being white, for, for all these different things. It's just like, oh, how, how dare these white people tell people what to do with their bodies? How dare they? And so this is a guy that's just kind of spewing this intersectional nonsense, intersectional nonsense. And it's just kind of one of those things where this is kind of the world that we live in. So I, I do like, though, that there have been folks like Matt Walsh over the Daily Wire and Lila Rose over at Live Action. Um, they are basically coordinating a peaceful assembly march uh, that's going to be happening outside of this abortion clinic, I think at 11 o'clock in the morning this Friday in Philadelphia. And so basically this guy, he better show up 
this Brian Sims guy, he better show up and talk to these people because he's making all these big grandiose claims and he's real, real tough in the face of an elderly woman and in the faces of teenage girls. But I wonder what happens when he has hundreds, if not thousands of people that show up in his district, in his district to challenge him on what he's done and his actions. I think it'll be pretty amazing. But here's the other thing. And this leads right into what we're talking about today. Why is this man that doxed elderly women and asked for the addresses and names and numbers of teenage girls still allowed on social media? Because what we're talking about today is we're talking about censorship. So if you were paying attention to the news at the end of last week, uh, Facebook made a huge announcement. And so in order to kind of bring you up to speed, I'm actually going to do a podcast first, right? I'm going to read an article from the New York Times, okay? So obviously, I don't agree with a lot of the editorial nonsense that the New York Times puts out there. But for the most part, this article, I feel like is pretty fair. I think it just describes things right down the center. There's a few things that's kind of like, ah, probably shouldn't have said that, but it is what it is. I think this gives a good summary of what's happening. So I'm just going to go ahead and read through this for you guys. So you can kind of get a sense of where we're at. So the uh, link I'll provide it to you here at the end of the podcast, but the name of the article is Facebook bars, Alex Jones, Louis Farrakhan, and others from its services. And this is by Mike Isaac and Kevin Roos. So here we go. This is an article from May 2nd. After years of wavering about how to handle the extreme voices populating its platform, Facebook on Thursday evicted seven of its most controversial users, many of whom are conservatives, immediately inflaming the debate about the power and accountability of large tech companies. The social network said it has barred Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist and founder of Infowars, from its platform, along with a handful of other extremists. Louis Farrakhan, the outspoken black nationalist minister who, was frequently, who has frequently been criticized for his anti-Semitic remarks, was also banned. The Silicon Valley company said these users were disallowed from using Facebook and Instagram under its policies against, quote, dangerous individuals and organizations, unquote. We've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence or hate, regardless of ideology, a Facebook spokeswoman said in a statement. The process for evaluating potential violators is extensive, and it is what has led us to our decision to remove these accounts today. Facebook's move is one of the tech industry's broadest actions to punish high-profile extremists at a time when social media companies are under fire for allowing hateful content and misinformation to spread on their services. It is a politically delicate moment, as President Trump and others have accused the companies of censoring right-wing opinions and of having too much influence over free speech. Last week, Mr. Trump met with Twitter's chief executive, Jack Dorsey, after calling his company, quote, very discriminatory, unquote. With the bans, Facebook went further than it has in the past to deal with fear and hate-mongering on its services. The company previously preferred to focus on reducing the distribution of harmful content and removing individual posts that violate its rules, rather than banning users entirely. Last year, a Facebook official posting from the company's official Twitter account said that we, quote, just don't think banning pages for sharing conspiracy theories or false news is the right way to go, unquote. That piecemeal approach has been insufficient, and with new reports of lies and hate speech surfacing on Facebook almost daily. The company is also under pressure from regulators to clean up its platform. Last week, it said it was expecting the Federal Trade Commission to fine it up to $5 billion for privacy violations. 
The scrutiny has prompted Facebook to evaluate its direction. Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive, last month said he was shifting the site away from being a public town square in favor of private communications. On Tuesday, he unveiled a redesign of Facebook's mobile app and desktop site to focus on more private group-based communications. Paul Barrett, deputy director of New York University's Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, said on Thursday that Facebook's action of banning extremists was long overdue. For too long, Facebook and other social media companies have claimed not to be arbiters of the truth that appears on their platforms, he said. Facebook's newest move to remove extremists like Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos from the platform is just the latest piece of evidence that this is not the case. The social media companies not only have the right, but an ethical responsibility to remove disinformation and hate speech and those who spread it from their platforms. Many of the users barred by Facebook have previously been prohibited on other social media services. Mr. Yiannopoulos, a former Breitbart editor and far-right media personality, was banned from Twitter in 2016 after leading a harassment campaign against the actress Leslie Jones. Laura Loomer, a right-wing provocateur, was barred by Twitter earlier this year for making Islamophobic comments about Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat of Minnesota. The others banned on Facebook on Thursday were Paul Joseph Watson, an InfoWars contributor, and Paul Nealon, a white nationalist who ran unsuccessfully for Congress in 2018. InfoWars was also booted. Mr. Watson said in a tweet that he was given no reason for his eviction by Facebook. I broke none of their rules, he said. In an authoritarian society controlled by a handful of Silicon Valley giants, all dissent must be purged. He also appealed to the president for help, complaining in a tweet that Facebook was, quote, now just banning people for wrong think, unquote, with, quote, no pretense of enforcing rules, unquote. Other banned users scrambled to steer their followers to other platforms. Ms. Loomer pointed her Instagram followers to her channel on Telegram, a messaging app. Mr. Yiannopoulos told his Instagram followers to sign up for his email newsletter. An email to InfoWars was not returned. Mr. Farrakhan, Mr. Nealon, and Mr. Loomer could not be reached. At Facebook, the bans follow an internal discussion about its content policies, said two people with knowledge of the matter who were not authorized to speak publicly. For the past few months, the company has discussed the policies because they either focused on banning a single account, which was too narrow, or labeling someone as a purveyor of hate speech or someone who incited violence, which was over overly broad and required removing all associated accounts and the content under review, including those of anyone else who was supporting the same views. The company has stressed in the past that it continuously reviews its content policies and the ways they work, or the ways they do not work, with the way people use Facebook. Facebook's policies team discussed how some accounts spread dangerous content by stopped but stopped short of encouraging violence or being directly affiliated with hate groups. They also wanted to find wanted to find a way to remove the accounts or pages of a, quote, dangerous individual, unquote, without blocking others from discussing what that person was saying, the people said. So in recent months, the social network updated its policies to navigate that middle ground, they said. Facebook then found instances of extremism by Mr. Jones and others that pushed the company to take action against them. For example, Mr. Jones last year hosted an Infowars show featuring Gavin McGinnis, a far-right political commentator whom Facebook has designated a hate figure. Mr. Yiannopoulos also has had also signaled praise for Mr. Gavin McGinnis earlier this year. Social media companies have banned users affiliated with ISIS and other form extremist groups for years, but the fear of angering Republican lawmakers or provoking an unwanted censorship debate has made executives at these companies tread more carefully when it comes to domestic far-right extremists. I'm sure they're going to make a slippery slope argument here said Joan Donovan, the director of Harvard's Technology and Social Change Research Project, who studies online extremism. But if it's this kind of removal of services is because these people are in fact using their accounts to violate terms of service or organize networked harassment, then it's not really about conservative speech or any form of speech. 
Many of the users barred by Facebook remain active on YouTube and other social platforms. Mr. Watson maintains an active channel on YouTube where he has 1.6 million subscribers. Mr. Jones, who was kicked off of YouTube last year, has made guest appearances on the channels of other popular users since the ban, including the podcast host Joe Rogan and Logan Paul, a YouTube creator with 19 million subscribers. A YouTube spokeswoman declined to comment. Tech companies cracked... Crackdowns do not just affect the reputations of these extremist figures, they also affect their earnings by cutting them off from large audiences who support them financially. Mr. Yiannopoulos, who was banned from Venmo and PayPal last year after using the services to harass a Jewish journalist, is reportedly in debt. And Mr. Jones, who claimed that earlier bans would strengthen him by calling attention to his cause, has seen traffic to his web properties fall sharply. On Wednesday, a day before his latest thwarting, Mr. Jones sent an email newsletter to his fans thanking them for their supporting the Infowar and advertising discounted dietary supplements and water filtration systems. The email pointed to an Instagram page that, as of Thursday morning, no longer exists. So guys, I know that was a little bit of a longer article, but I wanted to give you kind of the full summation of what we're looking at here with what uh, we're going to be talking about today. We kind of need to look at that. So the thing about these these stories and the thing about what this news brought up is it brought up a lot of questions. And so whether you were listening, because I mean, I heard a lot of people talking about this. I heard this talked about on Ben Shapiro's podcast and Matt Walsh's podcast, but also on Albert Moeller's podcast. And a lot of people are kind of weighing in on this. But I feel like a lot of the same questions kept coming up. So one of the questions was how long until these people are banned completely from all social media, right? So you see, you know, Alex Jones has probably been banned the most, right? There's very few places where he can exist right now. But a lot of these guys can still exist on YouTube, uh, namely except for Alex Jones. But the thing about it is most of these attacks or most of these uh, bannings, rather, they seem rather coordinated. So when Alex Jones was banned, he was banned by YouTube and Apple on iTunes and, and, and all that was in the same day. And so it, it wasn't even like can like oddly convenient that that all happened on the same day. It was obviously coordinated. And so how long until these people that were listed are going to be taken away from social media entirely, thus cutting them off from the entirety of the world. Because if you think about it right now, if you're not talking on cable news, you're talking on social media. But if people can't get to you on social media, they just can't get to you. Like this is a new world that we live in. And another question that it asks or that it really begs here is what are the rules? Because that's the thing that I've seen is I kept seeing that these people were violating the rules, right? Well, there's even a quote here uh, from the Facebook executive. It was this, the process for evaluating potential violators is extensive and it is what led us to our decision to remove these accounts today. However, there are no examples given at any point of the exact things that these people were banned for. So, so if you're being reasonable, right, let's say maybe you're a little bit of a provocateur to use the New York times word. Let's say you're that type of a person, but let's say you want to toe the line, right? Or, or you just want to, you want to get really close to the line. You want to push the boundaries, but you never want to go over the edge because you don't want to, you know, basically ruin your reputation and ruin your career. Well, you don't really know where the line is right now. Now let's assume that that's a line that stays stagnant, which we can obviously assume that, that it would never stay stagnant. It's always going to keep moving. It's just like the goalposts in an argument with a dumb person. It's like, they're just going to keep moving the goalposts to a new place where they feel like they can beat you. Right. But at the same time, you're looking at something like what we're seeing here and we don't know the rules of the game, but we do know that even if we look at culture, culture has shifted so much, so quickly. Right. I I was listening to a podcast today uh, with Apology at Church, and they were basically talking about seminary schools that are getting even farther to the left on very, very core theological issues, namely with intersectionality and social justice and basically wokeness. Right. But 
These people were saying even five years ago, even two years ago, we weren't hearing any of the people that were running these schools saying anything that even resembled things like this. Where, where's the shift came? Because there's been no new revelation in scripture, right? Not like no new revelations whatsoever. So again, what are the rules? So if, if I want to be a rule follower, how do I follow the rules? We, we don't really know that. And I guess another question that it begs is what is hate? I mean, that, that is one of the most, I guess, infuriating things to hear from someone that you're debating with or trying to have a cordial conversation with. It's just, oh, well, you just hate blank, like whatever you're talking about. So I've talked about this before on the podcast. Obviously, if you're anti-abortion, oh, well, you just hate women, right? Uh, if you think that we should maybe know who is immigrating into our country, oh, it's you just hate people that aren't white, Right. It's just these things that they just say you hate something. If if you want everyone to kind of like pause for a second to say, hey, maybe we should discuss this further. Oh, it's you just hate people, right? You know, if you think that is immoral for two gay people to get married, that is a very unpopular thing in modern America to talk about or really the modern West, but it's you hate gay people all of a sudden. But again, if we go back to the statement from the Facebook representative, they said this, we've always banned individuals or organizations that promote or engage in violence and hate, regardless of ideology. But they don't really talk about violence. They don't really talk about hate. They don't really say what they mean, because a lot of people that come from the left side of the aisle, they think that speech they don't like is violence. You'll hear them say things like that, like speech is violence. But here's the thing is, is the you know, the Supreme Court's already taken a stance on this, right? It's that kind of famous, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? You can't incite violence with your language, right? But if somebody does violence because they heard something that I said and they turned it around in their brain and went out and was violent towards somebody, that's not my fault. So if I'm making, if I'm sitting here talking, you obviously know how I feel about abortion and somebody listens to my podcast and then they go out and physically harm a woman that's had an abortion or an abortion doctor, that's not my fault. It only becomes my fault and only I become liable if I tell my followers to go and do those things. If I actively incite violence, that is not protected under the first amendment. But you can say whatever you want to say about people. But the moment you say, hey, I need all of you to go over there and light that house on fire. Here's the address. Then I've incited violence. But these people are claiming that these are, you know, individuals or organizations that promote and engage in violence and hate, but they've done a really piss poor job of defining what that means. And now, now don't get it twisted. There's not a whole lot of things I would say to defend someone like Alex Jones or Milo Yiannopoulos. I think both of those guys are fairly gross. Uh, I think a lot of things that they've done in their life, some of it, they did it to provoke people, but other times they did it because maybe they have some evil tendencies, but there's a lot of, there are other people that they banned where it was just like, what have they done? other than express an opinion that doesn't really jive with your worldview. But that's where we're moving is where any speech I don't like is now hateful speech and violence, right? Which kind of goes to the next question, which are words violence? Like, can words be violence? And the thing is, is we just talked about it is like only if it incites violence. So I don't think anybody on the left or the right is sad whenever Twitter deleted ISIS accounts accounts that ISIS was using to, you know, get kids excited to potentially become suicide bombers or to join the caliphate or something like that. I don't think anybody was sad about that, but that's not what this was because you got to think they're they're also banning someone like, uh, you know, they're banning Louis Farrakhan, right? And, and the thing about it with Louis Farrakhan is there are some places that posted that Louis Farrakhan was a far right figure, which 
if you know anything about Louis Farrakhan and the things that he says and the, and the nonsense that he spouts, he's like the least far right person possible. But this kind of gets into the next part, which is a lot of the language that's being used around the story is conflating, you know, far right with conservatism. I've seen several people talk about this, that people on the left honestly think that's the same thing. They think Ben Shapiro and Milo Yiannopoulos are the same person, which if you know anything about the drama between those two individuals, you wouldn't say something so stupid. But the thing about it is, is, is what they, that's what they think that is, that if you're a conservative, you're far right, right? That, that you're some sort of an extremist, that you're a white supremacist, when all you're wanting to do is kind of conserve some of the core values that this country was founded on, right? But the other thing that this kind of shows is, let's just say this is a big virtue signaling thing by Facebook, which I don't think it is. They're actually deleting these accounts. But why weren't these people banned sooner? I mean, really, think about it from Facebook's perspective. Why weren't they banned sooner? Like, they knew that the things they were doing were wrong from the jump. Like, what was the tipping point? What was that last post? What was that last like? What was that last video? What was that last thing that's like, you know what? We just can't take this anymore. Again, this seems like a, a coordinated thing that happened in some sort of a uh, a room filled with PR professionals and lawyers. It, it was a coordinated thing and they just kind of throw Louis Farrakhan in there because, yeah, you know, he's an anti-Semite. He calls Jews termites. So, yeah, we might as well get him off the platform as well. Right. But the thing that's really interesting about that is some of these people were banned because they were connected to or attached to in some way other people. So it talked about Gavin McGinnis a couple of times. So I'll go back to the article here so you can know what I'm talking about. I'll take a little quote out of it from here. So it says this, Facebook then found instances of extremism by Mr. Jones, Alex Jones, and others that pushed the company to take action against them. For example, Mr. Jones last year hosted an InfoWars show featuring Gavin McGinnis, a far-right political commentator whom Facebook had designated as a hate figure. Mr. Yiannopoulos had also signaled praise for Mr. McGinnis earlier this year. So, one of their big arguments for getting rid of Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos is the fact that they had mentioned or interacted with or heaped praise on Gavin McGinnis, a person that they designated as a hate figure. Again, they've given us no definitions of what a hate figure is, and they've given us no examples about why Gavin McGinnis is one of those. And to be honest with you guys, I don't know a lot about Gavin McGinnis, right? I don't know a lot about it. That's That's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point is, is they're getting rid of Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos because he's attached to Gavin McGinnis. So this is where we get into the point here. What about Louis Farrakhan? You can find pictures right now of him with Barack Obama, with Bill Clinton, with, you know, celebrities like Snoop Dogg. You can find people that are coming to his defense on social media, people with blue check marks and lots of, got lots of followers. So do we ban those people? Because again, if we're, if we're following what y'all are saying, we have to ban those people. I forget who pointed it out, but guess what? Alex Jones was on Joe Rogan's podcast not that long ago. Do we ban Joe Rogan? Because Joe Rogan calls Alex Jones his friend. Joe Rogan's also had Milo Yiannopoulos on his show, right? Now, again, Joe Rogan will be the first one to tell you that just because someone's on a show, that doesn't mean he agrees with everything that that person says. He had Candace Owens on his show last year, and he was basically laughing at her uh, at different points because of some of the things that Candace Owens was saying. So he clearly doesn't just bring people on that he agrees with. But do we get rid of him? Basically the biggest podcast show on the planet because he had Alex Jones on? You see, when there's no definitions, there's no consistency, right? 
But the big question that this begs, and this is kind of a, a larger governmental question, is are social media companies platforms or publishers? And so if you haven't heard really about this, uh, the difference between a platform and a publisher is a platform is basically that, that space. I think how they described it in the New York times article is like a, a town square that people can kind of come to. Like, it's not the town square's fault. If someone brings a gun and shoots someone in the head, that's not the town square fault. So you hear a lot of people talk about this, like with phone lines. So think of a phone line, right? Like a landline, like what we used to have back in like the nineties, uh, a landline is a platform. So I can call and talk to my buddy, I can call and order a pizza, or I can call and order a terrorist attack, right? Now, it is not AT&T's fault if I call someone on the phone and incite them towards violence or tell them, yeah, we got the address, this is the building we're going to go blow up now. That's not AT&T's fault. They are providing a service. They are providing a platform. But the difference is, is if you are a publisher, you can actually be liable for the actions of what go on what, what the goings on of what you're doing at that point. So again, if you're a publisher, like maybe like Fox news or the New York times or something like that, if you print something that is libelous or slander against somebody, they can come after you. And so the thing about it, that's really interesting is Facebook and and the other social media companies, they are begging the United States government. This is so weird. They are begging the United States government to regulate them. Please, please, please come in and regulate us. Right. Y'all, y'all just take over because they don't want to be held responsible. Cause the thing about it is, is they're pretending to be a platform while acting like a publisher. They're, you know, getting rid of accounts that they don't like that tend to be people that are on the conservative side. You've heard a lot about maybe shadow banning. So these are people whose pages like this last came up with the unplanned movie, right? I remember y'all talking, uh, I talked to you guys about that on the unplanned movie that people would go and follow the page. And then they would come back to it later and they would see that they weren't following that page anymore. So Twitter, they said it was a, a bug in the page, right? Which I'm, I'm sure conveniently there was a bug on that one page for a movie that went against abortion. But basically they just said it was a bug. But what was actually happening is there was a concerted effort by Twitter to really limit the uh, overall impact of a movie that didn't kind of agree with their worldview, right? So, so that's something that was really interesting. And then there are other uh, political figures that saw, especially during the 2016 election cycle, people that were on the right, they saw all of their social media following go down. They saw all of their page views and their interactions and their, um, their likes, and they saw all those things go down. But that didn't happen to people that were on the political left, news or, or figures that are on the political left. So the thing about it is, again, these companies, they, they want to kind of control thought. They want everyone to kind of think the way that they do. But again, if they act like a publisher while pretending to be a platform, then they can get pounded. But there's almost 3 billion users of, of just Facebook. And there's hundreds of millions of users of, you know, Instagram and Twitter and, and, and all those other different sites. And, and YouTube literally has probably trillions of views of, of videos now. They're too far down the rabbit hole. They can't just be platforms anymore, right? And, and at this point, they can't just pretend that they're just going to be a publisher all of a sudden. It's like they can't change that much. But again, for us as thinking Christians, I want to kind of bring this all back. This might seem a little bit political or a little bit, you know, commentary, which to a certain degree it is. But I think there's some big things that us as thinking male Christians, as men of God, that we need to wrestle with here. And these are kind of, I guess, the big questions. There were two big questions that kept coming up to mind as I've been thinking about this since last Thursday. And the first is, when will they come for Christians? When? When will they come for us? Because like I said, 
if you were to go out and say, I think that it's wrong for a man to marry another man, regardless of the legality of it, right? I mean, we know what the, the Supreme Court did. We know about all those different things. But if you just say, in, I think it is immoral because of my worldview as a Christian, I think it is immoral for a man to be in a relationship with another man or a woman to be in a relationship with another woman. At what point is that going to be labeled as hate? And not just labeled as hate, but you will then be labeled as a hateful figure in the public. One that is worthy of being banned. It's something to think about. Because how much of what we believe in Scripture is heterodox with modern society? I mean, it doesn't really jive with most people. And this kind of leads to the last part here, which is, what will you do when they do come for you? What will you do? How will you react? How will you respond? Because that's the thing, guys, is in a lot of situations, maybe you've you've talked about basically situational awareness or being left of bang. A lot of how people respond in situations of crisis, you know, active shooter situations, you know, flash flood, you know, whatever situation you can come up with. It's the fact that they've prepared for it in their brains already. So they're having to react to the situation, but they're not frazzled or as frazzled as the people around them that aren't prepared. They're not going to be frozen. They're not going to be paralyzed by what's happening. They're going to spring into action. But the thing about a lot of the guys out there, certainly some of the guys that that I'm around or some of the guys that I talk to on a regular basis, they don't think about stuff like this. You know, they'll certainly, you know, wave their, you know, fists in the air and like, oh, you know, I wish it was like it was in the old days. And gosh darn it, why don't we have a Christian nation anymore? And they kind of, you know, lament what was, right? But they're not really thinking about how they're going to comport themselves in the new world. Because, I mean, we get hints from this from Scripture, guys. So 2 Timothy Timothy 3.12, it's indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Guys, we are guaranteed persecution. Like, I don't care what Carl Lentz says. I don't care what Stephen Furtick says. I don't care what that dope down in Houston, Joel Osteen says. We are guaranteed persecution. Right? We win in the end. But if you're going to live a godly life on this planet, you're going to be persecuted for it. And Jesus tells us in John 15, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's, in one sentence, it mentions hate three times. The world's going to hate us. The world already hates us. I mean, I've had people that are secular individuals or, you know, atheists that listen to this podcast. And if you're one of those people listening right now, or you're agnostic or something like that, dude, we're like ecstatic that you're here listening to it. But there are other people that are a little bit more militant about it, right? especially when I get into topics that they don't really like me talking about, like abortion. They think they've kind of cornered the market on abortion somehow, which is which is interesting to me. But the thing about it is, is we're being labeled as hateful individuals by those individuals. But at what point can we defend ourselves? Have you even thought about it? And so that's the thing that, that I want to really talk about with you guys and really, I guess, leave you with. I, I think I've kind of made the point here. I don't want to belabor it any further. But y'all need to think about this. Y'all need to be thinking about what life is going to look like for you if all of a sudden you can't post scripture online. If all of a sudden on the YouVersion Bible app, you can't share scripture anymore, that that is taken away. If we move and this isn't maybe in the next two to three years type thing, but maybe in the next 20 or 30 years, if there is a little bit more of an authoritarian type feel to social media or to information flow, how are we going to respond to that? Because right now it's easy. 
you know, every now and then you'll post a scripture online and someone will kind of put, you know, the eye rolling emoji or something like that. And that's what you think persecution is. And for some of you, it probably is. It probably affects you in a way that maybe it shouldn't. But those are the things that we have to contend with right now. But that's the thing is I want all of us to be thinking about is what is that going to look like for us as we operate in the future? For those of you that have young families or for those of you that, that don't have families yet, you're going to be preparing that next generation to be able to take on these types of issues. And I really hope you have the stones to get in there and get in the fight, but also be able to inform people in a very dutiful and helpful way for in ways that they can actually overcome that. So guys, before we let you out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. And so today we'll give you a quick rundown of some mental resilience tips for you. I went ahead and put in that article from Fox News about uh, Governor Brian Camp or Brian Kemp signing the heartbeat bill. Also, I put in a USA Today article, which basically talks about that Pennsylvania Democrat, Brian Sims, basically not apologizing all those different things. And so there's a bunch of Twitter interactions on there with him and Ted Cruz and Lila Rose. So you can go in there and look at that for yourself. Then I've got the article from the New York times about the the banning of the individuals. And then also I posted one from the daily wire for you that it does include a little of the information from the New York times, but it has some information from other places as well. But the last thing I posted for you was this long is like a three and a half hour long uh, podcast that Joe Rogan did with Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter. And I, I can't really remember how to pronounce her name, but it's Vijaya Gad. Vijaya Gad, I think she is a, um, she's one of like the legal counsel and the people that kind of deal with the public at Twitter. And then we have Tim, po- Tim Poole. So Tim Poole is a guy that's kind of like a whistleblower for people. And this is a guy that considers himself on the left, but he basically calls these social media companies out for their crap. Like when they're saying that they're not banning people or they're not shadow banning or all that. So it was a rather contentious podcast, but Jack Dorsey was actually on the Joe Rogan podcast like a month before this podcast. And Joe Rogan got scorched for this because he has Jack Dorsey on his platform, on his show. And he doesn't even ask him about banning of conservative speech. Like at all. People were like, Joe, are you serious? It was like Joe Rogan couldn't see it. That's one thing. If you if you watch Joe Rogan long enough, you can see there's different points where Joe Rogan's decently gullible when it comes to certain things. He, he sees one person say something and all of a sudden that's his new paradigm. And it just it like never occurred to him that people were uh, that were on the right side or people that were had speech that it was kind of against what, uh, you know, modern intersectional views was that, that that those people would possibly become banned at some point. So Joe Rogan um, invited Tim Pool on to kind of even the score out a little bit and he kind of tried to play referee. But that's a really, really interesting podcast. So if you want to listen to the YouTube video, I've got the link for that there. Or you can just go to anywhere you listen to podcasts and do that. All right, guys, thanks as always for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen. And please share this on social media. If you use the hashtag Undaunted Life, we will be sure to find your post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, that's how this podcast is going to continue to grow. The algorithms love five-star reviews and they love a few sentences letting them know why you like the podcast. So please, please leave us one. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019 and early 2020. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, to your men's event, at your team, your company, whatever, hit me up. Info at undaunted.life. Info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or Facebook com backslash undaunted life. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search undaunted life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description.
I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.